You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. Welcome back to HeadX, everybody. And I'm again today joined by my co-host, Dr. Nora Kozlowski of Melbourne Business School. Welcome, Nora. Hi, Martin. It's a delight to be here again. We've had some fabulous conversations over the last little weeks, haven't we? And I'm continuously amazed at the breadth and the diversity and the um, and the real interesting people you keep finding for me as guests on our podcast. I don't know. Your networks seem very diverse and very broad and very interesting and very state-of-the-art and very out there. I've been... Um, the activity you've been doing this week to grow that network and engage with uh, thank you, Martin. You're too kind. Um, I think what's been interesting about the guests that we've been able to speak with recently, for me at least, is that largely they're working within or working with higher ed, but actually outside of it. And so I think their perspectives are incredibly useful for those of us who are leaders in the sector to listen to, because I think people who work with higher ed but are not in charge of leading it, might have perspectives or might see possibilities that we actually miss when we're kind of stuck in the dynamics of the sector. So I've, I've been really excited by um, the guests who are offering up their observations of the sector. Well, you've hit the nail right on the head there, because I think that is the great value that um, these sorts of guests bring to us. We've I've been commenting on this in the, uh, in the pro- progress through 2023 of our Universities Accord, which has consulted widely with people in the Australian higher education sector, as it must and as it should, but to get international perspectives and to get perspectives from parallel innovations and developments from those not directly involved in higher education itself are always so valuable if we're going to enrich and get the broadest and, and different ideas. So fa- fabulous that you've got you've got the guests that we have today. Um, it, it comes after a, a series of guests that you've brought to me and other people have um have have brought to the the podcast that I've found really fascinating. Um, I don't know if you you may have come across Sarah O'Shea. She was the director of the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education in Australia up until the end of last year, and she was a guest brought to me by Professor Paul Harper of Universities Enable. I don't know if you know Paul. He's recently been promoted to professor at UQ. He's beside himself with happiness. We're all beside ourselves with happiness for him. And to have two real champions of student equity in amongst all of the discussion that we're having about student support in our sector at the moment is really fascinating. And so I'm really pleased that you're bringing guests from internationally and out of the sector to shed a light on what the student equity and student support needs at such a time of transformation in our sector. So, um, so Nora, tell us a little bit then about who our guest is today. Um, And I think perfect connection between um, Sarah and Paul and the guests that we have today. So I think the guest that we are speaking with today is known to be quite data savvy and quite passionate about equity and about access. But let's do the formal introduction. So today we are delighted to have as our guest, Brandon Bustide. Brandon is the Chief Partnership, Partnership Officer and Global Head of Learn Work Innovation at Kaplan. 
And he works with the world's most innovative leaders who are trying to improve access, quality, and work readiness across all facets of education and the workplace. Brandon's an expert on the intersection of learning and work. He's also a board member at the Business Higher Education Forum and at the Association of American Colleges and Universities. Prior to Kaplan, Brandon has led Gallup's work across higher education, government, and foundation and corporate social impact. Um, if you don't know him, he is a LinkedIn top voice. He writes a provocative newsletter called Bastide Bold, which pushes for transformation of education in favor of accessibility and affordability. We highly recommend this newsletter for any higher education leader looking for disruptive new ideas. Brandon, a big welcome to the HeadX podcast. Well, thank you guys for having me, and uh, I appreciate the kind introduction. Uh, I have a, a lot of ties to Australia, distant uh, Bustied relatives, um, half of which you know went to Australia, half to uh, the United States from Ireland. And uh, in any event, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and talking with folks that are engaged in lots of exciting conversations as you as you both are. Well, thank you very much, Brandon, for for those comments, and it's I'm really looking forward to this interview, and we'll hear a lot more from you straight after this message from our sponsors. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. So Brandon, you're the Chief Partnership Officer and Global Head of Learn, Work, Innovation at Kaplan. And um, you've already said in your introduction and how Nora has introduced you that you're a bold advocate for change in the education sector and a I think we could we all of us that will have been across your work will have seen that you're a constant source of really provocative and provocative in the best sense of the word provocative ideas for the change that we might go through. I wonder if you can just start off introducing yourself to us by explaining how has your journey in life and your career led you to adopt this sort of position in the work that you're doing? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a fun one to unpack. I'm going to try and you know go with a, a slightly abbreviated version. But look, I, I think to to some extent or a large extent, many of us who have spent our careers in education, or whatever levels that is, whatever you know angle of the of the broader uh, education ecosystem, it's it's because we've had a transformative experience through education ourselves and. And I certainly had that at almost every level of education. Um, you know, when I think about my my best mentors, people who changed and shaped my life in dramatic ways, they were teachers, they were faculty members, they were coaches who were also teachers. Um, and and you know, in in my family, my dad uh, my dad's dream was that you know his kids would be able to go to college anywhere they wanted. And he spent a career saving money to make sure that that was the case. And, um, you know, I was the first one on my mom's side of the family to get a college degree. And and I can say it was my dad's dream and my parents shared dream uh, to be able to save their kids, uh, you know, wherever you want to go, we have the money and you can go make it happen. So I'm I'm one of the very fortunate ones that not only was able to go to a top ranked college, but I got out debt free because my dad spent, you know, his his career as a goal doing that. So 
a lot of this for me is uh, I had a transformative experience. I know that when it happens in a transformative way, higher education is one of the most powerful things that we can possibly deliver in somebody's life. The real question is how well are we doing on that metric, right? It's sure not, you know, fail proof for every student who attends uh, higher education. And, um, and, you know, look, the big failures that that I continue to lose sleep over, and, and all of us are are involved in this. You look at just one stat. You know, if you're a, a child born into the top quartile of socioeconomic status in the United States, you're virtually guaranteed to graduate from college. Uh, well over eighty percent of those children will eventually get a college degree. If you're born into the bottom quartile, uh, that has barely moved from about six to nine percent over the last half a century. So although we've all made some efforts to improve access and equity in higher ed, you know, there's just one of the big monumental failures, right? Like th this has now become a socioeconomic status differentiator more than anything else. And we just can't afford to have that be the case. So, you know, that's the, that's the simple uh, introduction. Yeah, that's a simple introduction and a powerful one. And it maybe explains why you you've, found that to be such a focus for your life and career and why you've ended up working at Kaplan. Maybe you can elaborate on that for us a little bit, because as I understand it, Kaplan as a company has a history and is known for having been founded more than 80 years ago with a mission to help children of immigrants advance their dream of going to college. So very much that group where we haven't shifted the, the dial, very much that group that aren't born into that advantage. And with a company with that method, with that mission and ethos of accessibility and providing opportunity, how does that play out in the experience that you have of working in such a prominent position with Kaplan in today's day and age? Yeah, well, look, it, it's it's a real honor. Uh, Kaplan's a global education organization, uh, highly diversified. You know, touching students uh, from you know middle school through. Uh, retirement, right? And in, in terms of the, you know, the ranges and and across uh, schools and colleges and universities and and the workplace, right? And so you're right. We've been at this for about 85 years. It started with Stanley Kaplan in his in his parents' basement in Brooklyn, New York, uh, tutoring primarily, uh, you know, Jewish students and and children of immigrants to help them get into college. And, and the, the story uh, about why he became so passionate about that is, is a really important one. You know, he uh, was Jewish and at the time uh, graduated from college, CUNY, uh, which is one of the, you know, the, the university systems in the state of New York. Uh, he graduated number two in his class, applied to multiple medical schools and didn't get into a single one. And one of the primary reasons was because of Jewish quotas that medical schools had at the time. You know, his dream was to become a doctor and that got shut down because of that, right? The admissions criteria to get into medical school. And when he started to tutor students and become aware of, of what was known as the Regents exam and then the SAT, right? He realized very quickly that, that those, you know, how a student performs on those entrance exams is the difference between them achieving their their career dream or not. And so, you know, for us, like a lot of people know Kaplan in the United States in particular as a test prep company. Well, we, we are, we, but, but why we care about the tests is because the tests open doors to 
great jobs and great careers and, and you know, incredibly life-changing from an economic and otherwise perspective. So, so why do we care about tests? Because we, we care about those, uh, those next ladders, you know, the next rungs on the ladder towards, you know, ultimate career success. And, and, and so, uh, yeah, we've had a proud history of that. And part of the fun I have is that we're we're doing this on so many different levels. I mean, it ranges from the advising work we're doing for Amazon's frontline workers as part of their career choice education benefits program, where Kaplan's advising all of those uh, frontline workers on the options they have to upskill and reskill to ultimately get jobs outside of Amazon, which is one of their primary goals. And, and then it, you know, it runs the gamut to pre-college programs where we're helping high school students not just think about what they might want to major in, but more importantly, you know, what types of careers and jobs do they want to have? Like we do, we do a really poor job of giving young people exposures to different careers. And really it's like, hey, my mom does this or my dad does this, or I'm lucky to have parents who are in professional roles, or, or maybe I'm not. But like most young people have very limited exposure to all the different types of jobs and careers that are out there. So, you know, you, you ask, you know, you, you you reinforce the idea of going to college, then you decide a major, and then you're like, yeah, what do I want to do with life? We're trying to pull some of that exposure as early as possible um, and, and kind of spark seeds or or the opposite, have somebody be like, ooh, engineering, yeah, no, that's not what I want to do, right? What, whatever it might be, those are important things that we're trying to pull forward. So it's an incredible gamut that that you know we're operating um, around, and and just you know it, it 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 gives you energy because you get energy from the institutions you're working with and from the students that you're that you're serving. Brandon, I, I really what struck me there is just how important um, accessibility, how important exposure to careers, how important that is to individuals and to their stories and what they end up doing in life. Um, let's move it now from a focus on the individual and, and their stories to a larger economic picture. And so right back from, you know, you mentioned Stanley Kaplan's story of, of providing access or um, really breaking through um, demography. But let's let's talk about what's the economic impact of accessibility. So what's at stake if we don't provide broader accessibility of education um, to people from all walks of life? Well, there, there's a lot. And, you know, I'll just I'll point out one of the issues. Right. And this is it's a global issue. But I follow the the U.S. data very, very closely on this. And so I'll talk, you know, with U.S. data in mind, but know that it's extrapolated in many ways as a global problem. You know, a lot of people talk about the skills gap, right, that there's a whole bunch of jobs open, but there aren't, you know, people to fill them who have, you know, the skill sets and the qualifications necessary uh, to do that. And there definitely is, you know, we, we are suffering from a skills gap, right? And, uh, but on top of it, you know, we we have also sent very poor signaling uh, messages to the, you know, the potential workforce out there, because we've done a lot of things like we've posted jobs where we've said a bachelor's degree or a college degree is required. And if you really get under the hood of what's required in that job, you know, you, you could question a number of those as to whether a bachelor's degree is actually required. Right. And so, you know, we've, we've got several things happening that um, are, are challenging the idea that the college degree is the only way that you get to success at the same time that we still have lots of data that suggests that, you know, lifetime earnings 
are just a world of difference between those who who get that bachelor's degree or higher and those uh, who have only a high school education, right? So we know there's a huge, at least historically, economic difference between those things. But what's really changing right now is that we're, we're kind of running out of people, right? And what do I mean by that? Uh, birth rates are down, all-time lows in the United States, right? We don't have net immigration flow. That's at an all-time low. We have 70 million baby boomers getting ready to retire in the next five years, right? Like, we're, we're just, we, we're out of people. And so what that means is that, that employers now have to essentially consider anybody who applies for the role because we just, we don't have enough people. The reason why this is such an important moment, though, is that it's forcing everybody to realize that, you know what, there's talent everywhere. We just haven't helped it. And right now we're in this moment where employers have had to go to that place out of desperation. They have no choice, right? It wasn't just like they were like, hey, you know what? There's a lot of talent out there in the world. And we, no, no, no. Like they don't have people to fill jobs to grow. Now they have to consider all, so you're seeing bachelor degree requirements drop. What are they doing? They still have to provide training and ongoing upskilling and reskilling, right? And so where we're hurling very quickly is towards a place where I believe in the future, we won't distinguish between places of learning and places of work because they are going to be one and the same. And if we can get to that place, right, we will unleash a force of human talent, right? Because there's just a lot of talent that because they couldn't afford it, because they went to a poor school, they didn't go to school, you know, they didn't have the right, you know, uh, support in their in their lives, in their communities. We just we just pass them over. Right. And we're at a place now where it's it's, you know, all all humans, you know, please apply. <laughs> and if you're not skilled in the way that we need you to be, we're going to play a role in making that happen. Whether we do that ourselves as an employer, we partner with various academic institutions or higher institutions. Right. So so even though we got to this point because we were kind of forced to it, I think it is going to be a real true defining moment where we say, you know what? A lot of people could do this job. They just need some extra training or support. And that kind of changes the whole game. I'm going to just um, uh, pick up on your quote here of the future won't distinguish between places of work and learning. And that's certainly something that I'm seeing and that I deeply agree with. Um, And I also um, I love love your thoughts around we need all humans and it's really our job to, you know, can we make sure that we serve them well? Can we make sure that we support them correctly? Um, given the, the larger problems that you've just painted for us. Um, but so if places of work and learning will increasingly be harder to distinguish from one another, what's required for education providers and for employers to become ever closer? And what's the role of um, opportunities such as micro-credentialing or formalizing on the job learning? What What's the role of that in uh, further blurring the distinction between learning and working? I think... If we just talk about one of the mistakes we've made in academia, right, it has been that we have created this false dichotomy between uh, what it means to broadly educate an individual, right, in the sense of the liberal arts or a liberal education uh, and and skill or or, you know, what people would call training, right, you know, to train somebody around a specific skill as if those two things are mutually exclusive, that they cannot live together, right? And if you ask employers what they're looking for, they're actually really clear. They want both a broadly educated 
graduate, right? And somebody who is specifically skilled. They don't want one or the other. Maybe in rare cases, right? You're just, you're trying to fill a role. Somebody does this skill, I'll hire them. But but I, their ideal hire is somebody who's both broadly uh, educated and specifically skilled. So what does that mean for a hired institution? Well, it, it may mean that you uh, offer an industry recognized credential as part of the degree program. It may mean that you start teaching, you know, modern work software applications, right? Or data and analysts, you know, data analytic tools, you know, data science uh, type tools, you know, a lot of things that uh, some cutting edge institutions are starting to offer. They don't always have to be a degree program, right? So that's where you're starting to see some real movement around certificates, industry recognized credentials, specific courses around specific skills, and in you know, in, in my opinion, these things are not mutually exclusive. You can you can weave skill building into a bachelor's degree, and we can take elements of the bachelor's degree and add those to traditional training and skilling programs. And I'm just going to give you the one example I use all the time. To this day, the best leadership course I've ever taken was one taught through Shakespeare, and it was part of a bachelor's degree <laughs> program in public policy. But why should that course only live? inside of a bachelor's degree for students at Duke University, right? Like that's just a, 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 a question. Why, why couldn't it be uh, part of a technical training program where the, the students in that program are also exposed to some really interesting thinking about leadership and ethics and some of the dilemmas that leaders face, right? And um, so, so I think we've got opportunities to go both ways. Like we've seen a lot of pressure on universities and schools to integrate you know, micro credentials into their degree programs. I think we can also take some of the real value added elements of a, of a liberal arts degree, for example, and take it in pieces out to the broader skilling and training world. And ultimately, you know, nor where, where, you know, in the U S we've really fallen down is that we are just really bad at doing work integrated learning in the classroom, right. In academic settings, like Sure, some students will get an internship. You know, we have some examples of long-term projects that mimic work-type programs, but you know, the percentages of students that are hitting the mark on that is just an unacceptable level. We have not scaled experiential learning and work-integrated learning, and that is our big fundamental failure on the education side. In the workplace, we haven't wrapped our heads around what it means to have uh, uh, you know humans remain relevant in their job, it's going to mean more and more time spent on training and education, and it's going to be done as a paid thing. It's not going to be considered something that you, you have to squeeze in on nights and weekends. Like, I think we're going to move to a four plus one work day where we're going to have essentially four days on task of the job and a whole day dedicated to you know ongoing upskilling, reskilling, whatever form that might take learning is just going to become a major component of the workplace. There's some fascinating thoughts there, Brandon. And we said, I said in the introduction that you had a reputation for provocative ideas that, um, that um, and we reflected on the value of having someone and having people from outside the formality of the sector coming into the conversations about where the sector's going. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm loving doing this podcast and I'm loving talking with people like you and I'm loving working with people like Nora. But I come from 40 years working in universities in Europe, in Southeast Asia, in Australia. And 
I, I can't help but observe a difference in the mindset and in the nature of the conversation between many that, that have worked in the university sector and, and the leading edge of some of that change. And you, you, you've already said several times that you work personally and Kaplan works and partners with lots of universities. I think you work with more than 40 colleges and universities as, and you seek to do so as a full service education partner. Can you tell us about how you partner with universities more broadly and how you support them embracing this change the gender that you've just so articulately outlined there? What, what's the nature of your partnership relationships? Well, I mean, they're varied, you know, so we're we're a major partner to universities in uh, helping with international student recruitment. So we've got, you know, uh, university partnerships with Arizona State University where we support their international student recruitment. Uh, so, you know, a handful of institutions in the U.S. where we do that kind of work, several in the U.K. and in Australia where we support that. So that's one big area as we support global, you know, student recruitment of these institutions. We're also supporting a lot of their online uh, degree and non-degree functions, not the academic components, but uh, but certainly, you know, the I mentioned the pre-college programs we're doing. Those are all ones that are done with university partners. Uh, they're all developed uh, courses done by some of their most dynamic faculty. We help with uh, everything from supporting the, you know, the, the curriculum design with their content to video production, to the marketing uh, of those programs to high school students. And, and so, you know, in a lot of these cases, Martin, the Kaplan brand is entirely silent, right? Like we're, you know, we are providing support services either entirely behind the scenes or, uh, under the brand of these institutions. And so you have to be an incredible steward, not just of students, right, which we have always been, but also of of other brands. And, and in many cases, world-renowned brands, some of the most valuable brands in the world uh, that, you know, that we're, you know, in some form providing some uh, support services for. And so, you know, that's that's an important responsibility. That's something that we take very seriously, um, and then, you know, to give you an idea of the of the range of these things, right? I mean, it's 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 into the workplace supporting an organization like Amazon uh, that has almost as many employees as our active duty U.S. military, right? So, you know, and you, and you think about this, uh, you know, the GI Bill is a very well known uh, benefit for for enrolling in the military in the United States. You know, help pay for college education. Well, you can go work for Amazon. And they'll pay for your college education. It, it's 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 a commercial version of the GI Bill, and uh, and so you know you could argue that Amazon and companies like them are going to be putting more students through colleges than pretty much any force that I can point to right now. Um, and so you know that's an example that's an example, Martin, of where we're we're kind of partnering in the gray area between large employers and institutions of higher ed. And a lot of it is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this simple, the companies don't want to uh, spend the time and energy working with tons of universities, right? They don't know how to do that very well. And so they're kind of like, Kaplan, can you help us with this? On the university side, right, they aren't usually familiar with robust partnerships with companies. And, and so they're kind of like, Kaplan, can you help with this? And so we sit as kind of a valuable, uh, you know, glue in those relationships. And, um, and it's exactly where we want to be, because 
that's where we think we can add an awful lot of value. You know, as it comes back to one of the things that I'm most excited about, and this this is hard to believe it took us 80 some years before uh, before we thought about this. Most of the students who take our test prep programs, um, you know, will find us online, right? And they'll they'll swipe a credit card to pay for, uh, you know, a program they're preparing for the MCAT or the LSAT or whatever it might be. We, we just last year, we launched a program to offer that as a license, a flat license for a university where uh, they can offer all of Kaplan's test prep for graduate school and professional license to all their students. So, you know, GRE, GMAT, MCAT, LSAT, right? And then if you have a nursing school or a medical school or a law school, professional licensure exams, and it's just kind of changed the game from the responsibility of test prep being on the shoulders of parents and students individually to now institutions uh, making it something that they're offering to students. If you think about it, you know, college universities, they really have two goals. They either want to get somebody a great job when they graduate or they want to propel them into a great graduate school. And the higher rank, the better. And the higher the score, the higher likelihood that you get scholarship or merit aid. And so it's just a, it's a simple story to say, you know, Kaplan is always thinking about ways where even if it's not a big, new, innovative thing, this was a twist. It was all of our existing test prep programs. We just we've, we've now made it something accessible at an institutional level where, you know, now we have uh, a dozen historically black college universities that have have launched this all access program and they're just providing test prep to all their students. You know, and most of which would not have bought commercially available test prep. And so you think about the economic impact of a student who gets, you know, an extra three points or 50 points or 100 points for students that are on the cut score of getting into an elite, you know, graduate school or they're on the cut score of getting financial aid for merit aid. It makes millions of dollars of difference in lifetime earnings if you think about it that way. So you know, I, I stop on that example because it's it's kind of what Kaplan's always been doing, but we've changed the model and now have unlocked uh, some of the world's best test prep for, you know, so many more students who otherwise would never have had access to it. That simple change in test prep, um, as you said, actually unlocks uh, incredible economic potential. And it reminds me of something that you've written about before, Brandon, which is the difference between the holy cows in higher education and the sacred cows. And so for me, that example um, is an example of great progress that you've just described. So that that is a holy cow where you sort of stand back and and admire that change is possible. And it doesn't have to be this big thing. It's a it's a tweak that you make that has an enormous impact. But you've also written about that higher education has these these sacred cows where the sector is not examining its own efficacy. Um, so what, in your view, are some of those sacred cows? What are some of the longstanding assumptions and practices about how higher education operates that are ready to be challenged? Yeah, look, I mean, I, we could talk about things like, uh, you know, the tenure process, which, you know, historically has put weight on research, you know, grant productivity, et cetera, right? I, I always say uh, there's a lot of value to that uh, tenure uh, process because, look, the reality is our universities are producing, you know, some of the greatest research in the world, right, that's helping cure diseases, come up with vaccines, you know, keep troops on the battlefield safe. Uh, I think we spend very little time focusing on that benefit of higher ed, right? When we talk about it, we're always talking about, you know, the student 
side of things. But but so so that's great that you have that. But but why not have a tenure process that recognizes world class classroom teaching and mentoring of students? We really don't value mentoring and classroom teaching writ large across higher ed. I mean, th the faculty who are doing a great job of that are doing it in spite of the system, not because of it in terms of the incentives and rewards. And, and so, you know, that's a big one. It doesn't mean you've got to get rid of the tenure process that we're so familiar with, but that has a very different objective in mind than, for example, a, a similar process, whether it's incentives, tenure, or, or something else that rewards and recognizes the world-class teachers and mentors that students find so valuable, right? And, and then, you know, you mentioned the point about, uh, I, I, I was just in this conversation yesterday where I quipped that higher ed has studied everything except itself, right? So we're also very good. We have deft researchers on our campuses. We teach these kinds of things, right? But wait a minute, have we really evaluated our own impact, right? And, and this is just an interesting reflection. How rigorous have we been? And I'm talking globally now, right? Uh, how rigorous have we been in uh, evaluating teaching and learning? Like we should be making advancements monthly, breakthroughs and innovations for more effective teaching, more effective learning, lower cost models of, of effective learning, right? And and I feel like the 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 strides we've made in uh, our understanding of teaching and learning have been modest at best. And uh, and so, but but you know, think about that as as something we do. And even today's comments that I made on LinkedIn. You know, confidence in higher education is down considerably in the United States, um, and there's a lot there. That's a whole other conversation. But but essentially, uh, in just eight years' time, we've gone from having three times more proponents of higher ed than detractors, right? So in 2015, the, the data suggests we had three times more, you know, proponents of of U.S. higher ed than detractors. Today, it's actually negative, right? We have more detractors than promoters. And that's all happened in eight years, right? Like, and, and so when I brought this up, people were like, well, yeah, you know, but we shouldn't be tracking, you know, things like net promoter score at universities, right? I'm like, but why not? Why wouldn't we rigorously? And you know what? Australia has been doing a much better job of this. The, 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 uh, I forget what it's called, the National Survey of Student Satisfaction or Engagement. Help me out. I think it's the quilt database that you're talking about. That's it. That's what it is. That's what it is. I just couldn't remember. So, but but you know I, I you know we we have this uh, resistance to the idea that we should be measuring customer satisfaction anyway. But the reality is like that would be a really important investment. And you know, what do you whether you want to call it student customer? You can put different words in there. But uh, there's a real resistance to uh, to measuring that. We just we just can't take those kinds of stances anymore. Yeah, that, look, um, that's absolutely fascinating, Brandon. And and you've referred to your most recent writing about um, the the sort of sentiment towards higher education. You've also written before about the relevance of higher education, considering alternatives that present themselves, um, such as more work experience rather than higher education hosted opportunities to learn. And I I just wonder that um, you, you've referred to the sort of holy cows and the sacred cows of practice there. And this conversation has also talked about the changes in the skills that are needed for the future of work. We, we haven't yet referred to generative AI and technological innovation 
and how that. I knew went. we'd get there at some point, oh, Martin. There you go. <laughs> we held it to the end, but um, I just wonder if, in closing, you you you, you might summarize. You know, this could be the subject of four more podcast episodes, but there's not time for that. Your summary vision of what the future of education looks like from your vantage point with all of these changes in the future of work and skills and technology, the challenge to the relevance of higher education. What should the purpose of higher education be in the future? Yeah, look, I think, again, it goes back to one of those things that I said we've we've kind of. um created a, a, a false dichotomy the um i hear a lot of people say well well let me just let me just pause on this right the number one reason why americans value higher education is to get a good or better job there isn't even a close second it's not to say it's the only reason they value higher ed right but it is by far the number one reason and when i share that with audiences uh particularly faculty audiences i'll have a lot of faculty who i mean i've heard this statement in some form dozens and dozens of times my job is not to get a student a job. My job is to prepare them for life, right? Or to prepare them to be an engaged citizen or whatever. But but their initial reaction to that is my job isn't to prepare them for a job. I take a I take a very broad uh definition and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a more enlightened definition of what it means to have a good job. When I worked at Gallup, one of the profound insights from the Gallup World Poll was that what everybody wants is a great job. That is a global aspiration and ambition but the reason why they do is important and that's because they see getting a great job as their path to having a family having a great life having high well-being right and so this is the point that we have to just grapple with right is is that you know this isn't just about oh getting a job at a for-profit company to maximize my income right this is great job in the sense of uh, that is what unlocks a great life. And these are not necessarily, uh, you know, mutually exclusive, right? And so so if you take that view of a great job, that 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 could, you know, have a number of different economic definitions. But the reality here is that we've got to do a better job preparing students for success in the workplace, whether that's a government, nonprofit, or corporate workplace. We're falling down across the board. And so I'm kind of old school with my first statement, right? We need more experiential learning, more work integrated learning, whether those are internships, co-ops, externships, there's a lot of different flavors of it. All of them would move the needle in the right direction. We have to make those part of an academic requirement, right? Not a, a side dish that just happens if we're lucky. We need to assign academic credit and value to internships and certain things like that, right? But let me just end on this. You know, you talk about AI. I'm not an expert on AI, but I've been in a whole bunch of conversations about this. And the thing that has jumped out to me is that, um, you know, AI is really going to force us to ask the question, what is foundational for humans to know and be able to do? Because if AI and it's, you know, exponentially becoming smarter, wiser, easier to interact with, right? Why should I learn math if I can just have AI do it for me. Why should I, I mean, and, and then if I'm going to have somebody learn math, what math do I have them learn that's just considered foundational? I used to be really good with maps and navigating, right? But now that I have GPS, I never remember how to get anywhere because GPS just always helps. So GPS has actually de-skilled me 
in my orienteering abilities, right? And my, you know, uh, so now does that matter? Well, it would matter if right now my car broke down and my GPS went out because I used to have physical maps in my glove compartment. I no longer do, right? So, but, but here's the question. AI is going to force us to determine what is really human and what is foundational to be for fundamental to being human. And I got to tell you, you go down the list, like, should I learn a foreign language if, if it can just be automatically translated for me? Well, like, probably not. But what if I want to marry somebody who speaks a different language? Well, then I probably need to learn how to speak the language, right? So I think that's going to be the big thing we wrestle with is what's foundational uh, that we just need students to know and be able to learn or do. And what is, you know, truly AI driven. And you just go, you know what? AI can do it better. Why wouldn't I have AI do it? And that, that I think, is going to be our fundamental question in higher ed. Well, thank you very much. You referred there to um, things being smarter, wiser, and easier to interact with. And that seems like a lovely summary of encountering, encountering you in an interview, if you don't mind me saying <laughs> so, Brandon. But, um, Nora, why don't you sum up what we've heard there from, from Brandon today? Yeah, so much. I mean, uh, that's been a, a bit of a whirlwind tour of uh, your mind and, and the data that you have access to and that you digest and communicate probably better than anybody in education at the moment. But um, for me, a big theme just listening to you, Brandon, was around how education was kind of just a rite of passage, something that um, your access to it really depended on where you were born or what section of um, society you came from. Whereas now, I think education has this tremendous potential because we're connecting it to the big problems that we're facing as um, nations, as economies. So you're now connecting it to skills gaps. You're connecting it to a declining birth rate, which, Martin, I think you had a podcast episode on that um, previously. You're connecting it to, um, to an aging population. And that, I think, actually allows us to retain the relevance of higher education because it becomes about solving the big challenges that the world is facing. But in order to be able to solve the big challenges, I think listening to you, um, it became clear that it's about how do we structure education in such a way that it meets people where they're at. It helps them to integrate work and learning. It helps them um, to get a great job and whatever that means for, for those individuals. And if education is able to reposition and revitalize, to get to its new version, then it can actually help to solve the big challenges that we're facing. So, so that's sort of my um, my observation listening to you. It's been fascinating, Brandon. Thank you so much for your time today. And Martin, I don't know if you want to do the final wrap up of the episode. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for that, that Nora. My thanks to Brandon too. Um, and I couldn't agree more with what you've just said there, Nora. And I'll draw it out a little bit further because I couldn't possibly sort of sum it up better than you have. But I'll return us to how we started today's episode and, and what the wider conversation around HeadX podcasts has been. And that's been around the value of getting perspectives from beyond our own shores this is a largely Australian audience for this podcast, although an increasingly global one. And to look at in, in, insights from outside of our direct sector, there's so much. The solutions, Brandon, so perfectly illustrated that increasingly the solutions to the challenges to higher education and the needs for learning will be coming from universities working together with employers, either directly or through 
or through the vehicles and the collaborations with partnerships with organizations like Kaplan. That's already happening. Everyone needs to catch up with that. Everyone needs to embrace the future from an informed position with partners that are seeing the world in a slightly different way and are, are driving that change. And I think today's episode has given us a really good insight into how the changing landscape of higher education is playing out in other parts of the world in ways that are very relevant to this part of the world. And that's probably all we've got time for this week on HeadX. 